Welcome to the Modcast, the real happy hour. My name is Maud Arnold. I'm a tap dancer, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and joy expert. This weekly show will leave you feeling uplifted, empowered, and joyful. My guests are some of the most incredible artists, professionals, and human beings. Let them share their strategies to increase your personal joy and practice self-love. Modify your day and listen to the Modcast. Hello, Shaka. How are you? Hey, what's up, Er? Thank you so much for being my first guest of the season two of the Modcast. I'm super excited, for real, though. It's crazy. It's so crazy. You were on my episode six of season one, and it was an incredible conversation that I still feel inspired and motivated and joyful about. And today we are so lucky, everybody who's watching, we are so lucky because Shaka has a new book coming out. This is, it's called The Letters to the Sons of Society. I was very, very lucky and got to read The Galley, meaning an early copy. So this is my special copy that clearly has been traveled all over the world and have lots of markings and things in the book. I'm so excited. The book comes out January 20, January 18th. Sorry. It comes out January 18th, but you can pre-order the book today. The link is in my bio. Just click the link tree and order Amazon. However you like to get books, go to your bookstore, but order, order, order this book. We're going to talk all about the book today. But first, Shaka, how are you feeling on this beautiful sunny day in Southern California? I am great. Uh, you know, I'm really excited to be in conversation with you. Uh, as everybody knows, you're one of my favorite people. You're like my little sister. And I've been looking forward to this. I mean, this is the first um, IG Live I've, been do- I've done in a while. So I'm really excited to talk about all things, the new book, life, and whatever else comes up organically. I mean, I feel I am so honored to be your first IG Live in a while. I'm honored to have seen the journey of this book when you were telling us that you were starting this idea of a book of letters to your sons. And I'm just so excited for the world to read this book. Your first book, Writing My Wrongs, changed my life and it grew me in very real and tangible ways that I still reflect on and refer to today. So everybody Mm -hmm. read that book. Order both books while you're at it. And if you've already read Writing My Wrongs, just order it and give it as a gift to somebody because the best gift you can give somebody is the gift of reading. Okay. So, um, so Shaka, in your new book, Letters to the Sons of Society, uh, everybody, if you're meeting Shaka for the first time, Shaka has two sons and one is a grown up and one is a little boy who just turned 10. Sekou, who I know very well. I haven't yet met his other son, Jay, because he lives on the East Coast, but I'm sure that will happen soon. And what I love so much about this book, Shaka, and to explain to the audience who maybe don't know your story very briefly is Shaka was incarcerated for 19 years and he had Jay before he went to prison and he had Sekou after prison. And my, what I, I have so many key takeaways from the book, but mm. one of the major takeaways for me is that Black men are often looked at as a monolith. And within your own fatherhood, there are so many differences in your children and their upbringing. And Mm -hmm. so can you talk a little bit about dispelling the idea and the stereotype of Black men as a monolith and how that has been dangerous um, to us in society? Uh, Thank you so much for, for, you know, really asking that question. You know, it's something that's, It really resonates with who I am today and where I'm at today as a man, as a father, as a black man specifically. And, you know, I've been really fortunate to have incredible mentors, incredible friends uh, who all happen to be black fathers and and black men. And, you know, some of the conversations we talk about is the way that our narrative has been framed. And I was thinking about this this morning as I was preparing for this conversation. Oftentimes we hear people saying, we need to change the narrative. And I don't think that's really true. I think what we really need to do is expand the narrative. 
because some of the current narratives are accurate, right? So there are men who don't show up. There are men who have been harmful to the community. There are men who have been absent from the community in a variety of ways. And at one point in my life, I was all of those men. And mm. so when I think about who I am today, it is an extension of my narrative where I didn't allow it to stop with my incarceration. I continue to evolve, I continue to grow, and I continue to develop as a man. And I see that in a lot of my friends. We're constantly pushing each other to grow and to evolve. So as a dad with these very different experiences, uh, one, I was 19 years old when I went to prison. And my oldest son, Jay, who just turned 30 uh, a few days ago, you know, he was born six months after my arrest. And so our experience really was shaped through telephone calls and visits when my dad would bring him up. And when I got out of prison, you know, I was a grown man, you know, so mm -hmm. 19, your brain isn't even fully developed. And you compound that with the reality that I was incarcerated. And what I thought was doing my best to father from prison was nearly impossible. And right. so now, when, you know, now where I'm at today, when I got out of prison, I was 38 years old and I had my little one shortly after I was released from prison. And so I've got the chance for the last 10 years to really develop as a father, uh, to really grow as a man and being Sekou's father specifically really helped grow me in a lot of ways. Uh, it made me more receptive to love it made me really understand the magnitude of what it means to shepherd a young life in the world. And a lot of that learning came from me being a mentor to other young men whose fathers weren't absent or other young men whose fathers haven't been emotionally available and vulnerable. So those two different experiences really inspired the book. And, you know, it's, it's the thing that has me the most excited because I believe we have an opportunity to expand the conversation around black men specifically and men in general. I mean, thank you for such a beautiful answer. And, and you talked about vulnerability. And what I think is so powerful, one of the most powerful things for me in your writing is that I feel the vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And that's so rare to feel that from a black man speaking just about life, you know, like this, this is your life experience. And you are so selfless in being vulnerable and being very honest about these things. And I'm a woman, obviously, and I, and I don't have any children myself now. I mentor tons of kids around the world. But your book really helped me think about how I communicate with children because I deal with the, you know, kids who live these like very joyful, happy lives with not a lot of problems to kids who have had severe trauma. And one of the things in, in your book and one of the letters to Jay, your older son, that I really loved and really resonated with me is you, you say that sometimes you guys sit on the phone silently and you said love fills that silence. And can you expound upon that thought and idea and love filling silent spaces? Yeah, you know, in that particular passage, what it's really about for me is presence without mm -hmm. any attachment to whatever the outcome will be. And so there, there's a friend of mine named Dr. Safali, and she wrote this beautiful book called Conscious Parenting. And one of the things that resonated with me when she talked about egoless parenting, and when you grow up, like I grew up black, black, right? I grew up like in Detroit. <laughs> uh, you know, I grew up where you know, kids are to be seen, not heard. Uh, kids don't have opinions in the household. Whatever's put on that table is what you eat. Um, you know, when grown folks are talking, you shut your mouth. And if you're even lucky to be or privileged to be in a room, and I knew I wanted to parent different from that because what I realized is that that type of parenting suffocates kids and it shrinks kids. And it makes, it made me feel, um, you know, incapable of expressing myself without fear of some type of retribution or retaliatory reaction to that. And so the way that I've chosen a parent is really being present and them basically showing up however, right? And especially with my mm -hmm. oldest son, where it can be very complex, right? Like he's, a, he's an adult now, he's 30 years old. And, you know, it can be very difficult. Like I grew up in prison, so I grew up around 
the super gritty, hardcore, you know, no no holes barred, no punches pulled, you know, stumped down, grind, don't nobody got time for these tears and this whining. Uh -huh. And I knew that I had to disrupt some of that in order to learn how to be available and vulnerable. And sometimes that silence, we always think we have to fill it with a bunch of noise. And sometimes the presence of just being really allows children to flourish in their own understanding of what they want to communicate to the world or what they don't want to communicate to the world. And so not only do I do it with my older son, but there's moments with Sekou when he may not be up for his high energy, normal self. And I just have to be present as, as his dad or there's something I want him to do a specific way and he has another idea about it. And I have to remove my ego from that and make sure that I'm checking my ego and the way that I've learned to do it is to think about whatever I'm asking him that he has an alternative uh, answer to is to make sure he's safe and to make sure that he understands what the potential outcomes can be and then to just get out of his way. And to me, that's love. Love, love is really in, in the details of those moments. I love that. You also have such a beautiful way with words. And obviously during this talk, I don't want to give too much of the book away because I want everybody to read it and feel it for themselves. But you say something, I love alliteration. And of course this line stuck out to me is, is you said you danced with, you danced in the face of disaster a lot in your life. You danced with disaster. And so for anybody that might be listening to this who, who danced or dances with disaster often in their lives, whether it be things that could potentially harm themselves or harm somebody else. How do you pull yourself out of dancing with disaster and instead of dan and instead dance with abundance or love, let's say? Yeah, I think that starts with, you know, the, the way that you, you know, navigate the reality of dancing with disaster. And really what I was talking about there is that I, I realized in the last few years, you know, especially, you know, as I was exploring therapy and things of that nature, is that the levels of trauma I experienced were at a magnitude that most people can't even begin to imagine. And I wrote about some of it in writing my wrongs, but I didn't write about all of it. And some of it comes out in this book as well. And what I realized is that, you know, when you, when you think about what dancing is and the way that it's articulated in our culture, it's like somebody came and swept you off your feet and you glide across the floor and you move about. And, you know, one of the things I've learned from, from you and Chloe and the rest of the sync ladies is that in order to dance at the highest level, there has to be some grounding. And mm -hmm. I believe that's the same when you're talking about navigating trauma and navigating disaster, is if you can reposition yourself to what grounds you most, then it's easier to dance into abundance. It's easier to dance into joy, but it requires a specific type of grounding. And it's one of the, one of the things that I love about having an incredible friendship with, with just brilliant women, women who I admire and respect, is because that grounding is something that I've been able to observe even when people are just looking at the performance portion of it. I'm looking at something else because I've been fortunate enough to get to know you all. I mean, it's incredible. Um, thank you so much. That's very humbling. And for those of you who don't know, we got to collaborate, Syncopated Ladies, we got to collaborate with Shaka and he wrote a gorgeous, powerful, poignant poem, spoken word piece for us that we performed on the National Day of Racial Healing for Ava DuVernay. And y'all, let me tell you, Shaka is a genius. He came <laughs> into the studio and each lady went around the room and just talked kind of about their experiences with racism. And Shaka was just sitting there on his phone, like taking notes, right? And I think maybe he's saying like, oh, Maude has dealt with this or Asad has dealt with this or Pam has dealt with this. And then everybody finishes talking. He's like, all right, so this is what I got. And it was the complete thing finished beautifully. It was, he captured truly like more than three dimension. He really got all of our essences as well. And I just have to say, obviously you're a brilliant writer because uh, Penguin Random House doesn't just uh, publish anybody's books. So congratulations. <laughs> and you know, even more than being published by one of the most revered publishing houses in the world is that the people revere you. And mm -hmm. the men who are still locked up, the men and women who are still incarcerated, 
are literally moved by you and inspired to keep going. And in, in one of the chapters, you talk about um, meeting a son of somebody who's currently incarcerated. And I say this to say, this book is not just for men. It's not just for Black people. It's not just for people with sons or people with children. I feel like if I, had to, if I worked at Barnes and Nobles and I had to put this book in a section, I'd be like, I need it in self-help. I need it in fatherhood. I need it in guided journal. I need it in thriller. Because there are some parts of the book where I'm literally on the edge of my seat. <laughs> Trip to the gas station. I was like, ha! Ah! I mean, when you read it to us the first time, I was sobbing. And I remember looking over at Faith, and she was sobbing. And you guys will have to read it to know why we, why we were crying. But when did you figure out, Shaka, the power of the written word? Because your words are so powerful. And it's one thing to speak them. And it's another thing to write them. So when did you realize your power and the power of the written word? You know, that, that's, that's a great, great question. And this, this is probably like one of the questions that get me the most excited because I love to talk about writing and the craft of storytelling. And for me, I used to tell, I used to tell what I now know to be a lie, right? Um, I used to say that, you know, I started my writer's journey when I was in solitary confinement. But I began to go back and look at these bread crumbs that kind of came to be, right? And I remember I had been out in the streets hustling. You know, I, was, I started hustling when I was about 14. And there was a period in my life when my dad was like, really want you to come home, go back to school. And so I enrolled in this school on the west side of Detroit called Cooley High School. I'm originally from the east side, but I enrolled in this school. I, you know, I moved to the west side. And I didn't, go, I didn't go to class, you know. I, prior to that, I was on a roll scholarship, super smart student. And I used to see this teacher when I was out skipping. And she never, like, she never laid into me. She never, you know, said anything like, yo, get your butt in class. But one day she stopped me and she said, you know, every time I see you, you speak with such elegance. You know, you speak so kindly and so thoughtful and well-mannered. Why are you standing out here in front of the school? Can you just come and attend my class just every now and then? Pop your head in. Promised her I would come. And when I entered her class, she gave me a, a, a book report to do on To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, wow. And, Classic. Yeah, I remember going to read this book. And, you know, I, I read the book. I write the report, turn it in. And I'm sitting in her class, and she comes up, and she twists my ear. And she said to me, why are you wasting this genius? Mm. Why are you wasting your brilliance? At that time, I'm thinking I'm just expressing myself, right? Wow. Forward, about six years later, I'm in prison. A guy on the cell block asked me to write an article for the prison newspaper. I'm like, bro, why would you ask me to write an article for the prison newspaper? I'm running illegal stores. I'm drug trafficking. <laughs> I'm bugging it out on the yard. I don't even know where this even fits in at, right? And he says to me, like, well, I feel like you're smart. Mm. And I was okay, well, that's a good enough reason. So I ended up writing this story. And the story was based on a visit I had just had with my dad and my stepmom. Mm -hmm. And they came up to visit me at Michigan Reformatory. And they told me that my sister was battling a crack addiction. Mm. And now my sister, who's one year older than me, is my best friend. It was devastating because I know what happens to women in that culture. And I can only imagine the horrific experiences my sister was going through while she was navigating addiction. And so I ended up writing a story about that. Give it to the guy. I don't think nothing else about it. Two months later, I'm leaving work. I worked in a recreation center, so I'm walking back to the cell block. These two guys approaching me. Now, keep in mind... This at the time where this I'm at the, I'm at the Gladiator School. It goes down on the yard. People get stabbed. <laughs> it's beefs on the yard. I'm a shot caller, and because I'm in the recreation center, I don't know what's happening out on the yard until I get out there. And so when they're approaching me initially, I'm like, all right, it's about to pop off. You know what I'm saying? And the brother come up to me like, yo, you shotgun? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, what's up? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I'm shotgun. Like, what? What's, you what's, ready? About to go down. You know what I'm saying? It's about to get popping, right? And he was like, man, can I give you a hug? And he was like, I just read that article. My mother's going through the same thing. And the other brother says to me, man, can I give you a hug as well? My auntie's going through the same thing. 
So I'm like, wow. I'm like, you know, dap them up, you know, keep it moving. I get back to work. My recreation supervisor literally has a newspaper like this, and he keeps looking at me, and he's reading, and he's looking at me. And he says to me, he was like, did you write this? And I'm like, yeah, I wrote it. You know, again, no big deal. Yeah, I wrote it. What, what, what you talking about? He like, no, like, did you really write this? I'm like, yeah, bro, I wrote it. Like, what's, what's the big deal? And he is like, he's like, I want to take this home to my wife. Wow. So he takes it home to his wife. His wife's name is Judy. His name is Tom Sight. He's one of my friends to this day. His wife's name is Judy. Judy sends a message back and says, this is some of the most brilliant raw writing I've ever read. Mm. He just work on his grammatical errors. And I was like, wow, you know, so I, again, I'm not thinking anything of it. Fast forward about three or four years later, I'm in solitary when I actually started writing full manuscripts. And so for me, it was a sprinkling of those things. And in addition to those two stories, there was also my family members who would be like, yo, write me one of them letters from prison. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> when I would write home, I would literally just detail what's happening on the yard. Like, I'm, I'm in it, you know? Um, and so... That's hilarious because usually people in prison are begging people who are on the outside to write them, and you got people who are free begging you to write them from prison. Now, yeah, if that doesn't say you are a good writer, <laughs> yeah. if I'm home chilling in my house and I'm awaiting a letter from Shaka because it's so well written, yeah, I mean, Shaka... Well, I mean, that's how Sekou got here, you know, me writing his mama. So, <laughs> so uh, Shaka, is the next book going to be how, how to Talk to a Lady? I mean, how you to, know. How they, to find a boo? They have to pay me so much for that. Like, it's, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> it's, it's like levels to that, you know. There's but, levels. You can't, you can't just give all the swag away. Yeah, yeah. But, but no, you know, there's so much. But there is a lot of swag to be learned from both of your books. And in this book in particular... And I know I can speak for myself and a lot of my homegirls that I've spoken to, when you meet a man who is vulnerable and who isn't afraid to share, it is very sexy. Yeah. Because mystery is great, but the thing is that life is mysterious and everybody will always be a mystery. But it's Absolutely. like, I don't want to try to just bang my head on a, on a brick wall with somebody I want to get to know. And I think that so many Black men are socialized to do that and yeah. in in your in one of the letters um for Taurus you talk about how you were denying yourself joy how you found that you were denying yourself joy and you were so obsessed with like I'm grinding I'm I'm working I'm killing it this chapter really spoke to me because you know we all work so hard and it's like trying to find those moments. So can you talk about how you used to deny joy to yourself and now how that has changed? Yeah, no, I, you know, this is a great question. And it's one of the things that, that I really love about the book, because even though I wrote the book to my two sons, I think the messages are universal. Mm -hmm. And I have sons, so I had to write to my, to my two sons. But, you know, I think the themes are, are so res are going to resonate with people on a very deep, intimate level. And when you talk about emotional vulnerability, you know, I always go back to when people are like, how can you be so open? How can you be so, you know, authentic in who you are? When you go through the prison system, mm -hmm. the prison system is a series of stripping, of stripping mm -hmm. away your humanity, stripping away your dignity, stripping away your clothes. And you are forced to stand in a room full of people naked. Uh, when you're forced to be strip searching, people are telling you, you know, lift up your, you know, genitalia, all the things that are so demeaning and so degrading in order to not lose your mind in that. Like you have to center yourself. And, you know, for me, it was always bringing myself back to presence. And, and I tell this, this one story, I don't, I don't think I've ended up writing about it in this book. I can't remember because I haven't read all of it in a while. I was in solitary confinement. There was this woman who was obsessed with me and she wanted me to masturbate for her. Um, and so this was a very common, common thing in that environment, right? Women who were in that environment, they would come to the cells and guys would, you know, masturbate in front of them. And it was the way that they exchanged sexual gratification. Now, instinctively, you would think that in an environment that's as sexually repressed as prison, that I would have jumped at that invitation. 
But the reality was I had a very deep and profound understanding of black bodies when they're being caged and housed by white people. Mm. And what I mean by that is understanding the legacy of slavery, understanding what was done to our bodies, understanding how we had no uh, agency over our bodies. So mm -hmm. instead of finding her invitation enticing, I found it repulsive. Because wow. to me, it was denigrate the essence of who I was as an African, you know, a, a, a man of African heritage. And so it was those things that understand that deep and profound understanding of why it's important to have agency of not only our bodies, but of our minds, of our spirits, of our emotions. And that's what allows me to be free because I've been through the worst of what it means to be stripped. And yes. so for me, reclaiming that power by saying, I'm going to own all aspects of me and I'm going to freely share with the, in, with the you know, intention of liberating not only my sons, but the sons of society, because I feel like, you know, we have been labeled as America's problem to solve, as black women's problem, as each other's problem. And I know we're so much more expansive than that. But in mm -hmm. order for us to really get, you know, our brothers to a space where emotional vulnerability is seen as a superpower, as opposed to a weakness, it takes somebody to lead who has been stripped of everything. Because once you have been stripped of everything and you begin to reclaim those parts, the courage that comes from that is unmatched. And so what I tell people, like I don't, I don't fear of being harmed by being emotionally vulnerable, whether it's with a, a lover or whether it's with my friends and my family, because I'm so centered in who I am. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of the reasons that I'm able to succeed at the level that I'm able to succeed is because I absolutely know without a doubt that I'm going to always show up for me. Um, and oh, I, I love that. So, so for me, showing up in love, showing up in my authentic self, like mm -hmm. that feels powerful to me to, to say to someone, I love you and I care for you and I want to be you know, the support for you in a way that honors who you are because I'm honoring who I am. You know, like I gained nothing from, from being in a, in a relationship, an entanglement, uh, 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 whatever other ways that we define these things by being closed off. And mm -hmm. even deeper than that, you know, and, 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 I've, and I've been, you know, I won't say guilty because I think that's the wrong implication, right? Mm -hmm. But I've dated freely for years with no intentions of, of you know, that culminated in anything, right? It's just, hey, we're hooking up, we're dating, we're all the things. But one of the things I was always mindful of, of was who I shared space with. And yes. so to me, what is, what is absurd is that physically we would share our bodies with somebody in the most intimate of space, our homes, our bedrooms, our, you know, over dinner or whatever. But then we'll be like, I'm going to be stingy with how I feel. And how you feel doesn't necessarily have to be love. It can be, hey, I actually like you. You make me smile. You make me laugh. I love to joke with you. And, and it can be that. And it can be okay. You know what I'm saying? But also amongst each other as men, when I think about the men in my life and the men who I admire and respect, like I feel honored to be able to say to another man, brother, you inspire me. You know, mm -hmm. you may get up off the couch today and go write something. You made me rethink about how I was approaching business. Like to me, the most honorable thing to do with each other is to be able to stand in that truth and say, you know what? I appreciate you. You know what I'm saying? I appreciate you for putting me up on game for how you show up in the world because that, that, that fuels that desire for me to be the best version of myself. And so to me, vulnerability is that, is that deal. You know what I mean? And, and it's, it's wild because sometimes I know for specifically men, it can be very hard to be authentic. So, you know, it's like we'll, we'll give a compliment, but we'll make sure we knock that compliment down a little bit. It'd be like, yo, uh -huh. bro, I can go over there shining. Oh, you think you all that. Instead of just stopping that, yo, I see you shining, bro, and I respect that. And that make me feel like I can shine too. You know what I'm saying? Or when we receive that, somebody be like, yo, man, I, I love that car you pulled up in. Oh uh, man, this little light thing, you know, I'm working on something else. Like, no, bro, stand in, stand in that, affirm that, you know what I'm saying? Receive that, you know? 
And so I'm in this space now where the reception of love was kind of like that last part of the missing puzzle for me. Mm. I mean, that's amazing. And I think that it's so important. I mean, I, I find that sometimes if somebody compliments me too, I find that I diminish it. And who I learned to not do that from are you and Felicia. Because if you tell mm. Felicia, oh, I love, you look fabulous. She says, I know, right? Thanks. <laughs> and I'm like, yes. I remember right. the first time she said it to me, I was so taken aback not offended i was like she better stand in her light and know you you know when you look good so why pretend you know that you you know rolled up in the bends and you are proud of it so why pretend like you're not so how it for anybody listening men or women or or anybody um how did you work towards showing up for yourself and finding that grounding to show up for yourself unapologetically? Because I think there's a lot of fear before that step. So what are some steps to maybe get through that fear? So there, there was a couple of things that transpired in my life. So, you know, I, I've been growing my locks now for about 22 years. Wow. And what a lot of people don't know is this is my third attempt to grow my locks. Oh, wow. The first time I started to try to grow locks was around 1996. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was in prison. I'm on a cell block. So up to that point, it was ball phase or ball head. I can't and even I, imagine I, you like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to see your picture. Like, I'm going to see your picture for real. I'm going to trip you out. <laughs> so, so I started the locks. You know, I took my little towel and I'm rolling around. And... I remember brothers being like, man, what, what's going on with your nappy hair, right? Like, you know, like, yo, you tripping, right? And, and it triggered, it triggered trauma from my past. So my older siblings, they have a different dad. And my older siblings have hair texture similar to yours. Ah. And so my mother used to always say to me, you know, take your butt up to the barbershop and cut that nappy shit off. Mm. And so when the brother said it in jest, it would trigger that trauma, trauma response. And so I went and cut it off. I went and cut it off. And I was still reading all these books on, you know, Afrocentricity and learning to love my black self and all the different things. And then I started them again. And I got a little bit further. And I remember looking in the mirror one day and I felt uncomfortable. Mm. And so I cut it off again. And I continued on this journey of reading and learning. And just the more I began to take pride in who I was as a, as a black man, when I finally got to the point I was able to start my locks, I was actually in solitary. And I was looking in the mirror. I was in my cell looking in this little scratchy, dingy. It's not even like a real mirror. It's like a piece of metal. Uh -huh. And I began to apologize to myself. And I began to apologize to myself for all the things that I had allowed to fester. All of the things that I began to believe that had nothing to do with me. Because I realized that the things that my mother said to me, the things that other people had said to me or done to me was a reflection of their unhealed trauma and a reflection of their hurt and had absolutely nothing to do with me. And so at that point, I started my, my journey on my locks and, and, I, and I've been growing them now for over two decades. And I always think about, like, even the ends of my locks. I'm like, wow, this part of me right here was in solitary confinement. And all these roots are, this is my freedom. You know, I would take my hair. I have a hair full of hair just for the audience. <laughs> uh, but I haven't, I haven't twisted my, my hair in a, in a, in a while. Oh, you're good, you're good, Shaka. Yeah. But, but, you know, I always think about that. Anytime I'm twisting new growth of, like, man, like, my freedom is getting longer and longer and my incarceration is shrinking. And so, wow. you know, when, you, when, when, I, when I think about it from that perspective, like that is what allows me to be so free and open and vulnerable. And, you know, even the times, I have times now where I'm like, man, I should cut my locks, you know? Uh, but I always meditate on it before I make that decision uh, because it's really that, that, that powerful of an experience for me. It was that life changer for me, you know? I mean, I think that hair holds a lot of energy. 
Absolutely. And for you, and it's such a visual representation. It's physical. It's tangible. Hair can be heavy. Hair can be light. Hair has a smell. And I think that you're also at a place now. You've been growing your locks for 22 years because you're so grounded in who you are and you know who you are. If if you decide to cut your locks, when you do, that too is going to be another form of freedom and expression and change because you feel like it, not Absolutely. dictated by anybody else. Um, I think that it's it's so powerful. I mean, growing up, I because I've always worn my hair naturally. I remember in D.C., guys used to approach me and say, you would look really pretty if you straightened your hair. Mm. And it was always brothers. And so, it, you know, it does start to feed in your brain like, oh, if I straighten my hair, will more boys like me? And all of those things inform you. And thank goodness we have a mom who's here, by the way. Hey, mom. You know, she loves you. She loved the book. She read it. And my mom was like, no, you will wear your, you will wear your hair naturally. You will not wear makeup. And you will learn to love who you are. Mm. And here we are. Yeah. Decades later, hair the same, loving who we are. And, but thank goodness we had a mom who reinforced that. And shout out to her, too, because she's white. And she still reinforced and understood the importance of natural hair. And more importantly, natural beauty, like how you're born is how it should be. Because Sekou is so proud of his locks because they're Absolutely. a reflection of you. It makes you guys look more alike. It's a connection. How you do your hair. You know, hair is such a process in and of itself. So you and Sekou have to sit and do the same thing and use the same products. And I think that, you know, a big takeaway from what you just said for me was apologizing to yourself. Absolutely. Or yeah, internalizing I'm other people's insecurities or self-hate or just things that they were taught. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a powerful thing when you think about it. You know, you can... You know, it's two things, right? So, so going back to that original piece about the compliments, right? Like we distribute compliments amongst people so easily and so effortlessly, mm -hmm. but we don't do the same thing for ourselves. And the same thing with apologizing. Like we'll, we'll do some harm and apologize to someone else, but a lot of times we won't apologize to ourselves. And mm -hmm. to me, that's where the true power lies that it's like, if you treat yourself with the highest degree of care and thoughtfulness in the manner in which you would do for others, like your life becomes much more fulfilling and you yeah. feel much more inside of your body in a real way. And I promise you, this is what I want. Like from this book, I want brothers, I want men specifically to wake up to like that power of like this authentic self-love, like not some contrived, made up, concocted, here, look at my jewelry, look at my whatever. Like all those things are cool. Like I don't, you know, I don't, you know, whatever, you, whatever your thing is, your thing. Like I love sneakers. I love flat cars. Uh, you know, I, it's the things, right? But it's deeper than that for me. It's like, you know, I also love how I show up in the world, how I show up for my friends how I show up for the women in my life, how I show up for my brothers, uh, how I show up for my friends who aren't black. Like I got so many dope friends that really represent the human rainbow. And because we're able to lean into who we truly are, like the healing happens faster, the authentic conversations happen more frequently and it deepens those friendships and, uh, and that connectivity. I, I mean, it's so real because the reality is, is that you know, if, you, if you're here, for the most part, you're a capitalist, and we all have the things that we like. You know, I love sneakers, too. I love a fancy car. But those are also not the things that define us. Absolutely. Because if, if a man just came and dropped me off a Bentley in my driveway, it wouldn't feel that great. But if I go to the Bentley dealership and know that I have worked hard and this is the thing that I want for myself because I want it, that is that, and then I buy it. It feels much different. And I think yeah. people have to remember to strip down those things and say, are these things defining me? Are these the things that make me happy? Because things will never make you happy, which you yeah. talk about in the book at one of your, your heights of success is when is that is exactly when you were denying yourself the joy. Absolutely. And it's like you have to strip, strip all that down. Yeah. Um, I also would like to say in our first modcast, I picked a quote that 
inspired me when I, I thought of I thought of you when I heard the quote and it was Khalil Gibran and you quoted him in Letters to the Sons of Society. Yeah. And I just love that because I thought it was like very cosmic and it was all in the ether. And I was like, oh, that's amazing because, you know, inspiration is cyclical and it's energy and it's always around. And I love that we talked, you know, last time on the podcast, we talked purely about joy and relationships. And in the book, you have a letter called Joy Day. Chaka. Mm. I wish I could have been at Joy Day. Let me tell you, Joy Day sounds like my kind of day. Yeah. I feel like you should make one in LA and I will be there dancing and doing whatever whatever it is that I need to do. And I feel like you and, and your uncle were so ahead of the game and so ahead of the time. We weren't talking about black boy joy and joy as an act of resistance. We weren't talking about any of that back then. So can you tell us just a little bit about the inspiration behind Joy Day and what that felt like putting that on for your community. Yeah, that that, that time is something that really, uh, so Fame, who I talk about in that chapter, he's actually like a friend of mine. And, wow. you know, I, I met Fame when I was writing for a local newspaper. So one of my first jobs coming home from prison was actually writing for a local newspaper. And I got that job in this very just random way, right? So. I got out of prison probably the, the same week I started a Facebook account. And I made a post that said, if you're a local artist, I would love to review your music. And I had two intentions behind that. One, I wanted to just get access to free music because I ain't had no money. <laughs> that is called resourceful. We're yeah. very resourceful. Exactly. And then the second thing was I wanted to keep my writing skills sharp as mm -hmm. I was beginning to release my first book. And so I ended up writing these couple of reviews and they gave me a check. I didn't even know they was gonna pay me for these little checks. And so my first pre-post-prison check was for, it was $225 checks for each review. That's uh, amazing. Yeah, and I thought it so too, because I ain't had no money. So I was like, yo, I got $50. I'm about to figure something <laughs> out. Hello. But they, they, so I continued to write those reviews. One day a writer was missing. They asked me to cover a story. I go to interview this brother. He's a, it, was a, it was a story about a local movie. I go to interview the brother thinking I'm just going to interview the actor. Turns out he was a, a theater actor who had overcome crack addiction. And so I ended up writing about the addiction of him overcoming that more so than the actual movie he was in because the movie wasn't that good, to be honest. Um, but his story was great. Yeah, so his story was great. And so I write it. I give it to the paper i come to work managing editor she says you know can i speak with you you know i'm thinking she's about to be like ah this is whack and she hands me this stack of mail she was like we have never received so many letters in response to a story and so they started letting me write all these stories and i ended up writing a story about fame who at the time he was building this spot called the fame shop mm -hmm. and his nickname is fame but the fame shop's acronym was fashion arts music entertainment and so he was designing clothes, designing t-shirts. So I go over there, we, I meet the brother. We chopping it up. I'm telling him, you know, I'm like, yo, I just got out of prison like two months ago, blah, blah, blah. This is my vision. I want to open a bookstore. He's like, well, I'm building this space. And, you know, you can set up a bookshop in here. So I literally open my own bookstore. I take all my little money I save, buy tons of books, open this bookstore. And I told him, I was like, you know, social impact and giving back to community is important to me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, we should figure out when we do this big grand opening of how to engage the community. And the street's called Joy Road. And anybody in the Detroit to tell you Joy Road can be everything other than joyful. Like it goes down, <laughs> you know, if you, if you Google Joy Road in Detroit, you're going to get a lot of stories, right? You ain't, you ain't going to go there, maybe, perhaps. Yeah, you ain't going to see no sunshine and rainbows. It's going to be a whole different thing, right? And so, you know, we started talking, and I was like, man, we should, we should put something together called Joy Day on Joy Road, where we just bring the community together, we feed the community, blah, blah. And I promise you, when I think back, I, I got a video clip I got to find. I had an old school, like, 96 Caprice Classic. He had an old work van with a dent in the door we ain't had no money you know so actually i was getting like uh government assistance at the time so i had my little food stamp card 
Hello, EBT. We went and bought food. Uh, we went up and down to every business on the block and asked somebody, everybody to contribute something. So it was like, hey, here, we got a, we got a thing of, of cups for y'all. We got some ice. We got, you know, here go 10-pack of hot dogs, blah, blah, right? And when we started putting the flyer out, we just started seeing kids walking up to the shop like, oh, it's three days left. It's two days left. It's like, it was like hype, right? And we were able to feed over 400 people on the spot. We were able to get food for 200 families. It was at a tough time in Detroit. And then we just got the community showing. I'm not going to tell all the details because it's in that chapter. Yeah, it's but, in the chapter. Yeah, but the community really showed up. And to me, you know, when I look back at the pictures, you know, I'm talking about there were championship boxers that brought all their boxing belts over to the event. There were, like, singers and dancers. And, I mean, it was just – it was unbelievable, you know. And – you know, initially fame kind of fought me on it, you know. But I, then, I but loved that yeah, part of the chapter. That, that happened, like it was a, it was it was, it was a game changer for him and me. Mm -hmm. And now fame has two shops in Detroit. They're like high end street where when you look at the building from where we came to where he's at now, whole different thing, you know. And so it really grew us up. It really changed the game for us. And um, and it's it's one of the moments in my life that I'm I'm the proudest of because it really showed what happens when community comes together. No, it's incredible because last year when we were when you were on the podcast and we were talking about joy and and all of these things, I had no idea Shaka about Joy Day. And then last year we uh, in 2020 we did the Black Joy Rally after all of the protests, and we're like, we just need joy. And again, it's. It's one of those things where the universe truly brings you to the right people who have, who share your similar qualities and values. And, you know, if, if we wrote on paper, you know, our, let's say, 18 years old to 22 years old, and if you and I did a checklist of what I was doing, what you were doing, people would be like, they would never be friends. They could yeah. never, nope, they should never meet. That might be dangerous. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Yep. And look, now we're family. And I, I think, you know, your first your first book that I read, Writing My Wrongs, you've Shaka has authored so many books, y'all. I in Writing My Wrongs, which is the first book that I read um from Shaka, it was really about dispelling those ideals and and about redemption and giving people chances to be human at the end of the day. We're all human. And I feel like I feel like writing my wrongs was get to know Shaka find out about this incredible man and his incredibly inspiring story that continues to inspire beyond beyond the pages. And then I, I for me, Letters to the Sons of Society was very much like a, like a blueprint of this is how you get to this place of empowerment. Because, you know, we see you at prison, then you're writing my wrongs, this huge success. I mean, Oprah knows your name, you're with all of these people. You're at Ben Horowitz uses you as a case study in his New York Times best-selling novel. He's one of the most sought-after businessmen in the world, and and then and it's like where where do how do I get from prison to this? And I feel like this book is the well find find your grounding, make sure that you're doing the right things. If you're a father, step up to the plate. If you're a son, step up to the plate. If you're a teacher, you're a mentor, step up to the plate. Um, one of the very exciting things that I wanted to talk about too today, Shaka, you have a book coming out, Letters to the Sense of Society, January 18th. It's a Monday. To help you guys remember that, just think uh, Modify Monday, buy my book. But really, you should buy your book today because we're going to get this thing on the New York Times bestseller list and pre-orders are key. Order a book, order it for a friend. It was Kwanzaa two weeks ago, not too late, give it the book, Okay. It's dry January, so you should be saving your money from alcohol and buying a book instead. Uh, but this year, or 2021, you are on an album with a rapper some of us may have heard of, just one of the best rappers alive, Nas. And it's your words. I mean, shocker. It's your words, Nas and Hit Boy. Can you just tell us, how does that feel to have that dream come true was that even a dream or was this that was that something that you had manifested and then it came true 
That's that's a great question, and I'm really excited to to talk about that. Uh, and the album is nominated for a Grammy, so. So you know, you're nominated for a Grammy. Yeah, I'm like, yo, is that that part is so crazy, right? So, I really I've really been thinking about this a lot, right? So. I believe in the laws of attraction. I believe you attract into the light, into your life, what you want to manifest. But I think it happens in two different ways. One, there's a very conscious law of attraction, right? That's the things you put on your vision board, the things you write in your journal, the things that you think about and obsess about the most. But then there's this very nuanced subconscious law of attraction that can happen. And I believe that's what happened with me and Nas. And to really give you some context, 1994, Michigan Reformatory, I'm reading the Source magazine, and they're talking about this artist, Nas. I ordered a tape. This is when we had tapes, right? So I ordered a tape. Comes a couple of weeks later. I'm laying on my bunk. I'm just listening to it. The song One Love comes on. Mm. And I promise you, it, it struck me like a lightning bolt. I hopped up. I'm like, whoa. Like, what is... Like, whoa, how does this guy talk about somebody in prison? He's writing a letter in the song to somebody in prison. Mm. I go and get a tattoo of Illmatic on my arm. It is by far the worst tattoo ever. It, <laughs> it is like the, the word Illmatic, you can't even tell what it says. The guy's just like butchering my arm. And then, I, in addition to the words Illmatic, I get, for some reason, I get a dog biting through a chain. So it sits in the middle of the words. The word Illmatic is separated, so it's ill on one side, it's matic on the other side. It is a hot mess. Fast forward, <laughs> 2015, I meet Felicia. Uh -huh. Me and on the phone call, and she's telling me about Ben and who Ben is. And I'm talking to her, and she's like, before we get off the phone, she was like, what, are you in the music? What kind of music do you listen to? And I was like, yeah, I'm in the hip-hop. You know, she was like, you like Nas? I'm like, I'm like, I love Nas. So I tell her the story of the tattoo. And she was like, this is crazy. Nas is really good friends with my husband, Ben. She like, the next time you're up in Northern Cal, we should all have dinner together, right? Fly up. Go, go, I'm going to do something else. Reach out to Felicia. She's like, yeah, meet us for dinner. Meet us at this restaurant. I'm headed to the restaurant. I'm almost at the restaurant. Felicia texts me and was like, hey, can you actually come to the house? I come to their house. She's like, Ben is still on the call. He was really excited to meet you, but he's on the call. You know, so we just had you come to the house. We didn't want you to wait at the restaurant. So I come in the house. I'm waiting. Ben gets off the call. We go through the formalities. Hey, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. He's like, man, Felicia was telling me the story about some tattoo you got uh, with Nas and blah, blah, blah. He's like, Nas is my guy. I showed Ben the Nas tattoo, and, and Ben nearly falls out of the chair laughing. <laughs> like, this is the worst tattoo ever. He like, I got to call Nas, right? So he literally calls Nas, puts us on the phone, and I say to Nas, you know, you don't know me from anywhere, but I want to tell you how your music impacted my life. The time I heard your song was one of the most difficult parts of my incarceration. I had about three years in. I had, you know, at that point, I didn't even know I had 16 more years to go. Mm. And, you know, so I would listen to that song over and over. And what I told him is that when I heard that song, it made me realize that people on the outside hadn't forgot about us. And that there was at least one person who was thinking about what we were going through. And so he was like, damn, that's crazy, you know? Accepted the, you know, the, the acknowledgement. Fast forward a couple of months later, we're at a barbecue. Nas comes in. We kind of do the brother thing where it's like, what up, what up? You know, Nas, you know, Ben's like this, blah, blah, blah. You know, we, we see each other th periodically throughout the barbecue. We always hit the nod. But no deep conversation, right? A few more months go by. We go to a Nas concert. And... It is the wildest thing ever, you know. And I'm not gonna get into all the details. I'm actually gonna write about that for the next book. I but can't wait. that became this cadence of us seeing each other over time, and then it went to us actually spending time together. Mm -hmm. And one day we spent probably about six hours together listening to hip hop. We listened to Eric B and Rakim. We just vibing. We having a you know sipping some yak. All the things you know. 
And it's the most surreal thing to me, Mar. Like, I, I can't even begin to tell you how crazy it is because what people don't know about Nas, but when I say this, it'll make sense about his music. He is truly a fan of hip hop. Mm. Watching him listen to Eric B and Rakim, you can see him transported back to 86. And so we were transported back to our boyhood and we like hyped up like, yo, we listen to Pay the Fool, we, we wildin', right? So it's not even a thing like it's Nas the icon, it's Nas the 15-year-old listening to Rakim experience, right? Fast forward, and we were actually together, you, me, um, uh, Chloe, when we were in New York after the Ben thing. And we were eating, and then y'all yeah. were going to the studio. Yeah, so again, now you're talking about a surreal moment. He like, yo, what you doing? I'm like, yo, I'm chilling. like, you want to come to the studio? Inside, I'm I like, I heard him say it you? to you, and I was like, shut up, better say yes. Crippling, <laughs> like, so we literally go to the studio. I don't even know if I told you this. When we get to the studio, DJ Premier is here. So it gets even crazier because I'm like, it this gets is even more legendary. So you got legendary, and then you got legendary. Yeah, and, and DJ Premier is telling all these great stories. And so, fast forward to make a long story short. I get this text from Nas, and he was like, bro, can you write some words to drop on this song? He don't send no beat. Only thing he tell me is the name of the song. He don't send a beat. And then I'm like, okay, when you need it, while I'm freaking out and sad, first of all, I'm like, yo, yo, what the, what, what's happening here, right? And so he doesn't tell me anything about the song other than the title, right? And so I'm like, yo, when do you, when do you need it? And he was like, uh, I need it right now. I'm in the studio. Can you send it to my phone? And of course, I'm like, calm, cool, and collective. I'm like, yeah, no problem, bro. I got you in, in a minute. I hang the phone up. I do my happy dance. I'm like, yo, I'm like, yo. I do my Detroit dance. So I <laughs> and so I'm literally like, this is crazy. So I, you know, I, I put the piece together and, you know, and I shoot it to him. And then, you know, he like, I got it. I'm going to give it to my producer. He was like, I got to take one part out because on another song, I use similar lyrics. So now I'm really tripping. I'm like, yo, I'm writing bars. Like, nah. And now nah, it's funny. Dead, Shaka. He funny, too, because when he asked me to write it, he was like, he was like, yeah, just record it, but but don't rap. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, so I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, it's, I'm like, it's all good, right? Uh, so, <laughs> That's all he tells me. I don't hear anything about the song for months. Bam. All of a sudden, I see the marketing for King's Disease 2. I see the album cover. And it's freaking me out because I'm like, wow, the color of the album cover is the same color as my book cover. And for y'all who haven't seen the book. It's the same it's the, as your book. It's the same. I mean, like the whole vibe of the color of the album cover so I'm like, this is It feels crazy. like it was like the same mood board. It was the exact same. And without us even communicating, right? And so I literally text Nas. I was like, man, the new album cover is fire. It's crazy, right? And he was like, oh, yeah, I can't wait till you hear the song we own. I'm like, what? <laughs> Shaka, here's the thing. I remember when you told Chloe and I. Yeah. He did a happy dance for you. Because if Nas, I mean, yeah. it doesn't get better than Nas. But what I love so much about all of this is, one, you deserve it. Let's be very clear. You deserve it. And you killed it. Um, and Nas, as legendary as he is, he's amazing. He's also a very kind person. You are legendary, too. And yeah. what I think it's important for anybody watching young or older on their path and with big dreams is when you are yourself authentically, the right things happen. And Absolutely. we're talking 1994 to 2021. It's crazy, right? And, I, and, and you weren't, and you also had no expectations. Yeah. You just kept doing the work for, that was true to you to also your work helps other people. So your selflessness paid off so much. I mean, the song is amazing. I'm so excited you're Grammy nominated, like it with Hit Boy. I mean, it's just 
it's all of the things and before and before we get cut off by instagram i purposely put up this photo of this i'm sorry this print of a painting by b mike because in the book you say you know the last chapter for me is so hopeful and so beautiful and you say i see a shirt that says i am my ancestors wildest dream and b mike drew this painted this painting and that is his that's his brand and i just have to say shaka the ancestors are doing their happy dances in heaven in the ether and all around us when they look at you when they when they feel you and when they read your words so everybody go out order letters to the sons of society do it today i don't want any excuses i don't want to hear i'll do it tomorrow i'll do it later guess what you have a smartphone if you're on instagram guess what that means you have amazon you have safari you have google the link is in my bio. Buy the book, read the book, share the book. It is truly a guide and a blueprint to wholesomeness, to greatness, and to self-empowerment and self-actualization. Shaka, anything you want to say? I love you, Maud. I love Chloe. And your mom is super, super dope. Uh, truly a jewel of a woman. And I'm happy I got a chance to gift her early copy uh and get her feedback but you know salute to you uh shout out and i appreciate you thank you so much for having me and i look forward to more of these conversations thank you shaka it was an honor to have you and to discuss your beautiful new love letter to society and to the sons of society so everybody go grab your copy today and i and, and put in the comments where you got your book and tag somebody and encourage them to buy the book Everybody have a beautiful rest of the week and don't forget to modify your day. Thank you.